This is part one of three from our Summer United States Supreme Court wrap-up live stream that took place on July 20th, presented by this podcast in the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice Leadership and Public Service. It featured Dean Megan Carpenter and Professors John Grady, Lucy Hodder, Buzz Schur, and Mike McCann. The video version of the show is available at facebook.com slash unhlaw. This episode features Dean Carpenter discussing Mahonoy School District VBL and Professor McCann talking about Alston v. NCAA. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. No accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So first up, we have Dean Megan Carpenter, who has led our law school since 2017. Dean Carpenter is an internationally known expert in intellectual property with particular interests in entrepreneurship, branding, and the arts. She has, whether she likes it or not, become a resident expert and people who end up uh, saying expletives and sit in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Dean Carpenter, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, AJ. Do we follow the George Carlin seven dirty words prohibition here? No, definitely not. We don't. Okay. No, we're so, clear. All right. Okay. <laughs> which is which is very relevant to our, our case that we're talking about today, which is Mahanoy Area School District VBL. Can you talk about that? what that case is centered around? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, There was a 14-year-old girl who did not make her public school's um, varsity cheerleading team. And she was very disappointed, as you might imagine, and expressed her disappointment on the social media app Snapchat by posting a photo of herself um, where she had her middle finger raised with the caption, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. I think that's a quote. Actually, it's definitely a quote. Definitely um, a quote. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so although the snap her of her herself was only viewed by you know 250 friends and um, you know was up for 24 hours, it also um, there some people took screenshots of it and shared it, including with some of the coaches. And she was suspended from the JV cheerleading team for a year on the grounds that um, that post violated team rules and and school rules. So the question here was really, you know, whether that suspension in particular violated her freedom of expression under the First Amendment. And start off with on the school side, I mean, how did they rationalize penalizing a student when they're not on school property? I kind of can understand a higher ed student encountering issues with an honor code violation or a private school, but in a K through 12 public school, it's very surprising. Yeah, you know, and I think when, especially when it comes to adolescents, schools are trying to raise good citizens in general, and sometimes their policies are not just directed to academic performance, but also just to being sort of thoughtful and responsible human beings. One of the things that's interesting in this case is that um, with the advent of social media, we haven't really thought about, you know, what it means to have on-campus speech versus off-campus speech in the social media context. So the case law that we were relying on, Tinker, is really the governing case here, which involved um, anti-war speech, which you can imagine, um, you know, means that it was some time ago. Um, That case really, you know, was far before the social media era and, and was really thinking about kind of a nexus of where there is substantial speech that Um, that has a substantial disruption on on the school itself, Um, that's how we were distinguishing kind of the the ability of schools to regulate this off-campus speech. But then with social media, um, you know, and as Justice Thomas pointed out in his dissent, sometimes off-campus speech can be received on campus um, now, and, and social media sort of tends to skew that concept a little bit. So I think that's 
that's where the school is, how it was approaching the, the issue. And the Supreme Court's ruling on this, I mean, Thomas was the lone dissenter. I mean, can you speak to the justices that sided with BL? Sure. Um, really, it was it was eight to one in the Supreme Court, which um, is a pretty overwhelming um, opinion. Breyer authored the opinion. And, and one of the things that struck me during the oral argument was a question from Breyer, actually, that um, he said something like, um, you know, she used unattractive swear words off campus. And, you know, if if that using those those unattractive words off campus um, is punishable by schools, every school in the country is going to be spending time um, punishing students. You know, and they would spend do, be doing nothing but punishing. I think is, is is what he said, and that I think really helps inform some of the opinion um, that uh, you know in in his written opinion of the majority and what they thought. Um, you know, overall was just that they pretty much agreed with the cheerleaders opinion overall, which was absent a disruption of school activities, disciplining students for expressions of opinion, whether those are made on campus really or off campus is just never warranted. It's not like the cheerleader stood up in the middle of a game, putting her middle finger up there. I mean, this was in a outside of school property. This was something that happened to have been leaked. It's like the equivalent of a note being passed after class and then it gets circulated. It seems like. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was her own device. It was her own time. And it was what she thought was a private circle of friends. Um, and there was no, you know, if we had something that was threatening or violent or bullying, harassing, I think we might have ended up with a different result. But here, this she was expressing emotion and feeling. And, and that's really the heart of free speech. I'd imagine a case like this will cause many school districts to review their policies and make sure they won't run afoul of new case law around this. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of us who grew up in eras before social media are thankful that we don't have, you know, records of our own growth in adolescence. But I think that this case in particular has has reaffirmed the First Amendment rights of adolescents to express themselves. And it's also good to know that schools can regulate um, off-campus speech and on-campus speech where there is that substantial disruption and the impact on the school program itself, including bullying and harassing and, and threatening speech. Did I miss anything on this, Dean? I don't think you did. I think you covered it. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for joining me, Dean Carpenter. Thanks so much, AJ. All right, we'll move on to Professor Mike McCann. He's the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, a legal analyst and senior sports legal reporter for Sportigo, and most recently caught headlines for testifying in front of Congress regarding name, image, and likeness rights. Can, welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, AJ, thanks for having me. So the NCAA seems to be having a rough go of late and maintaining a stranglehold on college sports this past decade, the Ed O'Bannon case being a huge milestone. Uh, how does the case NCAA v. Alston continue the pattern of the NCAA losing control over college athletes? Yeah, it's been rough going for the NCAA. They keep packing the losses on the score sheet, and they lost the Ed O'Bannon case. They lost the Alston case, which I'll talk about in a minute. And they just capitulated on name, image, and likeness, which, as you noted, AJ, stems from Ed O'Bannon's work in terms of players being in video games without their consent or without being paid. A number of states passed statutes that were going to go into effect on July 1st, saying that if there's a college athlete, he or she should be able to make money for the use of their name, image, and likeness, something that the NCAA until July 1st had said was in violation of amateurism rules, basically saying if an athlete gets paid, he or she loses their eligibility, 
which can mean losing their scholarship, which can mean not being able to afford to go to college. So those are pretty substantial repercussions. And the NCAA last month, talking about name, image, and likeness, was hoping that Congress would pass a federal name, image, and likeness statute that would provide equal rights for college athletes, regardless of what state they play in. This is something that has been proposed for a couple of years. They were hoping that the Senate would come through. I did testify before the Senate and they didn't come through. They, uh, July 1st lapsed and the NCAA sort of scrambled and put together an interim policy, which basically says it's up to schools what to do. And that creates really asymmetry between college athletes across the country. For years, the NCAA has said it's really it should be one rule for all. Now it's one rule per school, unless they're in a state where there's a statute. And state statutes vary on this as well. For instance, in Alabama, there are prohibitions on a athlete, college athlete signing with a gambling company, for example. Whereas in Florida, an endorsement deal has to have market value, so it can't be concealing pay for play. So it's, it's really a mess right now for the NCAA. The Austin case is different in that it's an antitrust case. The Austin case began about eight years ago. And the Austin case began as something bigger than it morphed into, but it began as an attack on NCAA rules that prohibit college athletes from being able to earn income for initially for everything, for their athletic performance, for what are now called education-related benefits. And the antitrust argument is that the NCAA and its member schools and conferences, they're all competing businesses. So our college is a competitor of Boston College and UVM and Maine and BU and you know, fill in the blank, literally over 1,100 colleges. They're all competing businesses. So when they join hands to say, none of us can pay college athletes anything for what are now called education-related benefits, that that's illegal. And in a 9-0 decision, you heard Dean Carpenter say 8-1 was a blowout. 9-0 is even more of a blowout. A 9-0 decision by, authored by Justice Gorsuch saying this is, this is a transparent violation of antitrust law because schools should be able to pay college athletes education-related benefits. So what does that mean? That can mean cash rewards for doing well in school. That can mean having the school pay for your laptop. It can't be a Lamborghini, which Justice Gorsuch said in his opinion, but there's, I mean, who knows what an education related benefit is. And I have a feeling schools are gonna become very creative in labeling things education related benefits because schools, at least those that have a lot of money and are trying to put together national programs, they're gonna really compete. And Justice Kavanaugh even said, quote, the NCAA's business model will be flat out illegal in almost any other industry in America, end quote. And that really stood out to me. I mean, take the side of the NCAA, college athletics is a messy business where it is, you mentioned, is that balancing act between amateurism and professionalism. Technically, college athletes are there to to learn. They're going to college, but it's how much we've always discussed in the past, like, being a college athlete takes over a majority of your time when you're on at college, most likely. Yeah. And Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion really made the case that this is a cartel. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. call it a cartel because we don't like to use that word, but this is functionally a cartel. And what the lawyers for Alston argued successfully is that 
schools compete for athletics in every way imaginable. They compete for coaches. They compete for staff. They compete to build the biggest stadium, to build the best track, to do everything with an eye towards recruiting the best athlete. Yet they can't pay the athlete himself or herself. So it's sort of like money goes around the thing that they all covet, right? And that argument persuaded liberal justices, conservative justices, and certainly Justice Kavanaugh, who really, I mean, and I think his concurring opinion was really sort of a love letter to sports fans, because it was written in a very accessible, sort of highly quotable way. The, the, the language that he used was to send a message. Now, I don't know if the other justices would go that far. None of, them, none of the other ones signed on to his concurring opinion. And to that point, during oral argument in March, some of the justices were reticent about the argument. So Justice Breyer, in particular, was concerned that he basically saying, we don't want judges rewriting college sports. Chief Justice Roberts said, this is like the game of Jenga. Once you start to pull things from it, the whole thing will collapse. Uh, Justice Thomas also seemed concerned at some point, though he did ask in one of the questions, why is it that coaches can be paid any amount, but college athletes can only be paid zero? I mean, it, it was a pretty powerful question. So yeah, I mean, certainly there, there's an argument. I think one issue, AJ, though, with, with that question is the colleges are all over the board in terms of the scope of their programs, whether they make money. Uh, you know, at a lot of schools, college, and I teach an undergrad course, as you know, I have a number of college athletes in that class. They are students. They are students who play a sport. They are not, they're, they're probably getting a, a fairly good deal, if you will, if they're getting a full ride to college. Uh, they're, they're having someone else pay for their tuition. But there are some athletes that go to college that are making a ton for their school. And it varies a lot from sport to sport. I mean, the, 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 the top tier football player is going to be doing immensely better than the third tier golf team player. <laughs> yeah. And also what is education if a player goes to college for a year to play basketball? And really it's not a year, right? It's they go to school for the fall semester. And then when the season ends in February, March, they leave and get ready for the NBA draft. I think colleges have to sort of have to have a, really a, a serious conversation about what is academic. Why is that even college? If you go to, if you literally go to school with the intent of saying one semester, I mean, what other person goes to college? And it isn't as if, I mean, even musicians, John Mayer, you know, could sign a recording deal when he goes to the Berkeley School of Music and there was no, oh, he's going to lose his scholarship, but what's he going to do next? The Olsen twins go to NYU. Fred Savage goes to Stanford. There was no, oh, how's that going to affect their eligibility. I mean, it's kind of a peculiar institution we have with college sports. And you talk to people from other countries and they scratch their head because in other countries they turn pro when they're good enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, going off of that, I mean, have the leagues spoken up at all about this? I mean, some leagues have uh, these in-between leagues where they don't necessarily want, they either they get the feeders from the colleges or they get feeders from a B league or something like that. Have yeah. they spoken up? So it varies by league. So if you're the NFL, what's wrong with college football? It's a free minor league system. Yeah. Right? I mean, literally, you're not, you're not paying anything for it. They are playing in at a top level, especially players in the Southeastern Conference or other Power Five conferences. Basketball is different. The NBA is now really effectively challenging college basketball. They've invested in their G League, which is a minor league uh, affiliate. 
And there's now something called Overtime Elite, which is where high school players can turn pro and make what's been reported as up to a million dollars a year. That sounds crazy for a U.S. In Europe, that's not crazy at all. Uh, Ed O'Bannon, the, the player who challenged NCAA, he went to play in Europe towards the end of his career. And he had, remember he was telling me about he had a 14-year-old teammate who was a pro athlete. He, he had a tutor. I mean, that's, how, that's what you do when you're in that situation. So we, we do it a certain way. But it does vary by league, AJ, in terms of what their interests are. I remember talking to an NBA general manager about, would you rather a player go to college or go to the G League? And he said, much rather go to the G League because they go to an NBA situation. They have an NBA coach. It's much easier to evaluate them. If they go to college, college basketball is very different from the NBA. I have a feeling if you talk to an NFL GM, they're going to say go to college because that really provides that free minor league system. What's next for Alston himself? I mean, is, is it like O'Bannon where it was essentially the good fight? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, what we'll now we'll have to see, the NCAA will have to change its rules and we'll, they'll have to figure out what education-related benefit will mean. And what Mark Emmer, the president of the NCAA, said last week is, well, colleges and conferences really need to take over this, which is just su- such an incredible statement given the NCAA's position for decades. But what I think we will see is conferences become much more autonomous, which is probably the way it should be. Because what we have now is a situation where you have colleges of very different sizes and athletic programs all playing by the same set of rules. Maybe players that go to Alabama and Notre Dame and USC and Miami, maybe their, maybe their rules should be different than those who go to, to smaller schools. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that that ends college. College sports are going to continue. People love college sports. I don't think this is going to, they're going to lose fans over it. Uh, Maybe they can actually grow the product. And maybe if college players are paid, they're more likely to stick around. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Mike. We'll definitely be talking about many, many cases, apparently, for the next 12 to 24 months, because these are not going anywhere. Uh, I'll let you go so you can get ready for your one o'clock event on name, image and likeness that's happening over at Sportico. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify.